Well, uh, young Chaucerians, we probably ought to get started on the third book of Troilus and Crusade, the central book in uh, every sense, the uh, book that sees the high point of the erotic uh, plot, the consummation of love that has been being prepared for by uh, the plot of, uh, of Tandarus, but we also see then emerging the, the that must inevitably uh, overwhelm the two lovers. It must inevitably do this because that is the law of a lot of this book is about the literary past, about all the and the narrator himself, who pretends to be a translator, uh, draws our attention to that, uh, to that fact. It may be true that the narrator begins in a sprightly, almost jovial mood, thinking that he's dealing with a time we get to the end of book three, uh, we know that that is not the case. Now, we need to remind ourselves of the very seedy plot that uh, Pandarus has hatched here. Uh, it's one, as I showed you last time, that he actually took from the Bible. Uh, the idea of a subtle, uh, manipulative friend who helped out uh, his friend by fixing him up uh, with a woman uh, in this uh, rather sordid way. In the Bible, it actually involves rape. Uh, in this poem, uh, the sexual aggression is mainly um, symbolic, but as we'll see, uh, the idea of sexual aggression is not altogether uh, absent. What Pandarus has done is to invent a plot against Crusader. This is a rather brilliant thing that Chaucer does, because of course Pandarus is against Crusader. But the idea is that there are unnamed people who are out to do her ill, and that the good folks in the town, that is Pandarus, Troilus, few others, especially his brother Deiphobus, must get together and formulate some common plan to counter uh, this threat to Crusader, a threat that is entirely imaginary, uh, except, of course, that there is the threat that is represented by uh, Pandarus himself. This is, there are two examples of this in, in the, in the Troilus, as you probably noticed. Uh, later on, Pandarus invents another fictive enemy, uh, namely somebody called Horaxes. And he tells, uh, he tells uh, that uh, Troilus has heard about you and Horaxes, and he's very upset about this. Well, she doesn't, she's never heard of Horaxes, so she doesn't know how to uh, respond to this another way uh, that, uh, that Pandarus uh, manipulates her. But it's done with great cunning. Uh, this is not a poem, given its pagan setting, in which Chaucer can take Caritas and Cupiditas as 
uh, items from a medieval Christian vocabulary and uh, one to the other. He nonetheless, I think, is doing this. He turns to uh, Troy, let you remember, and he says, who is the brother that you love the most? Now remember what Caritas is. The love you have for a brother. Without hesitation. One stanza, uh, Pandarus says, okay, Deophobus is the one that we're going to use uh, to pull off this plot, and he won't even know about it. And he ends uh, book two on the somewhat uh, unedifying theme of blindness, one of the major themes of the poem, because, of course, it uh, relates to uh, Oedipus, whom we saw in the very first opening lines of the poem, Fee on the Devil! says Pandarus at 1737, see on the devil, think which own he is, and in what place he come off and on. Think of switch tarried teed, but lost his niece, that while ye both are sane, when ye been owned, when once uh, you get together, you're going to forget about all these troubles that you've had. Uh, the, uh, secondly, there yet the Venus known upon your toe. Come off now, if you can. Nobody knows about this love affair uh, wheel folk is blent, all the scene is one. While people are blinded, that is the time to act. And you just might meditate a little bit about the differing meanings of the word blind in the uh, poem, uh, because obviously it has also a uh, moral, uh, a moral uh, valence. Now, Chaucer has constructed this very brilliantly. I told you in my last lecture that the whole plot of this crusader, based on the story of Am uh, Tamar by Am, is not found in the passages in the poem which he has invented out of whole cloth. Well, not entirely whole cloth, whole cloth. But he takes this and he uses it as the bridge between book two and book three. Book two ends with the saying, now's the time to strike while the iron is hot, while people are blinded. And then it immediately begins, uh, uh, essentially, uh, in the bedroom where uh, Troilus has gone with his fake illness. But meditate also on the theme of illness. You'll remember that when he was how to write a letter uh, imitating the Ars Poetica of Horace, what uh, one of the things Pandora said is, you've got to be consistent in your mix of imagery. Uh, for example, it would be totally inappropriate for someone to write a love story in medicinal or medical terms. And you'll never find another poem anywhere in world literature which does exactly that more to be sick. Go lie down and be sick. I don't need to pretend. I really am sick. And we know the sick that we saw in comic form in much more tragic form in the Night's Tale, it is the lover's malady of Herod. 
But those two episodes, that is to say the end of book two and the actual narrative beginning of book three, are interrupted by what is the most magnificent of all the proemia uh, in the uh, poem. Uh, and it is a beautiful hymn to physical love in the person of the uh, goddess Venus, O blissful licked, of which the bame is clear, adorneth all the thrid of heaven fair. O son of leaf, O Jova's doctor dare. This is Venus, the daughter of Jove, who we know from Dante and elsewhere, uh, in this ancient astronomy, rules over the area called the third heaven. Now, the great Dante scholar from Princeton, uh, Robert Hollander, wrote a book about Boccaccio called Boccaccio's Two Venuses. And he built a book around the very common idea in the Middle Ages and that the goddess Venus as an emblem that vital force of sexual generation rebirth by which the whole world uh, is uh, going. This is the kind of cosmic uh, Venus. On the other hand, as the individual hot goddess who is the mother of the eyeball and so on, she represents in a very clear sense the goddess of carnal love. And a lot of medieval literature sort of uh, plays, oscillates between these two possible meanings. Now, Chaucer makes it quite clear how we're to understand this, because in line four, he says, plaisance of love, O godly debonair. That is, he defines uh, the Venus that is being addressed here as the pleasure pleasure principle, uh, uh, libido. Remember our, uh, the, the funny line about Chanticleer in the Venus. Uh, the least than world to There are the possibilities. Generative Venus the Venus, who just simply stands for the pleasure uh, principle sex. And that's what, uh, in a fairly subtle line of this, in a fairly subtle uh, line of this poem, uh, Chaucer says about his uh, Venus. Scholars have tried to find uh, in this poem uh, classical antecedents, and one of the closest, actually, surprisingly, in Lucretius the De uh, uh, Rerum uh, Natura, a poem, however, that only was found, only rediscovered in the, uh, rediscovered in the Renaissance. I've done a lot of research on this myself, and I know we're constructing this po poem out of it. It's not too surprising. It's half Ovid and half Boethius. If you go to that central meter in Boethius, three meter eight, uh, where he talks about the force that rules over the world, you have a lot of the imagery that he is using here, but he uh, unmistakably uh, 
pushes it in this uh, carnal, as he would have thought, uh, rather pagan, uh, pagan direction. This poem is then cut off. That is, it stops sort of midway through its natural development to be picked up again in the center of the book in what I call, jokingly, the post-coital area of, uh, of Troilus. That is, after the love scene, uh, Troilus continues uh, to sing, and that's another indication, uh, I think, to, to interpret it. Now, Chaucer has, however, put a great deal of rhetorical energy into making this uh, uh, central love book extremely uh, attractive. Uh, that is, if it were not uh, attractive, uh, it wouldn't be uh, sufficient to command the uh, continuing interest of these uh, major characters uh, whom he's, uh, whom he's uh, created. He breaks it off very brusquely on page 514 and brilliantly, almost with the uh, device of a good uh, movie maker, movie director, we suddenly read from that Greek lyric statement uh, by the poet, by the ancient poetic tradition, to the interior of, uh, of Troilus's mind. Lay all this main a wheel Troilus recording his lesson in this manner, may fe thus will he say, and thus he is in bed practicing his lines. What am I going to say uh, when uh, Crusader uh, uh, gets here? Now, you'll notice <laughs> that Troilus, uh, although the great heroes of the uh, Trojan uh, uh, army, is not much of a lover uh, without the help of, uh, of, of Tandarus. Uh, We've already seen him faint once, and he's going to faint again, uh, practically faint, uh, in the bedroom, uh, in the in the bedroom scene, um, in in the bedroom scene here. This Troilus, we now are still in the mind of Troilus. He's there. What am I going to say when he gets here? My God, there, I can hear the footsteps coming uh, this way. Uh, read carefully the description here because it's really rather coarse. Um, it says that Pandarus leads say by the lap. Now, what this means is her loins and he's kind of into the bedroom. And as he's doing this, Pandarus thinks, my God, what am I going to say? This Troilus that heard his lottie pray of lordship him wax neither quick nor dead. He's neither alive nor dead. Remember that description? We met in the Canterbury Tales were in the same condition, Palamon and Arcida, when they're found in a big pile of bodies uh, after, the, uh, after, the, uh, after the battle. There are a lot of connections uh, between, uh, this, uh, uh, between this uh, story and uh, the, uh, the Knight's Tale. Namik no word for Shama, so it say, although men should have smitten off his head, but Lord, so hay wax. Sudden, which uh, red, he's shy, he's embarrassed, he blushes uh, very brightly when he comes into the bedroom. This the intervention of Pandarus, which he's performed. Later on in the book, actually, there's a very dramatic sexual reversal. That is to say, that once uh, Crusader has succumbed, so to speak, uh, 
gets a great deal more confident, and he moves from being the prey, the prey of Pandarus in this case, to being a kind of predator himself. And the image that the poet then uses is of a bird of prey, a falcon uh, or a hawk, chasing after a sparrow. Uh, that is to say, uh, that is to say, uh, Crusader. But for these openly open opening pages, he doesn't do anything but sort of lie there uh, in an embarrassed uh, fashion, uh, being encouraged by uh, being encouraged by Pandarus. It's obvious that, is it not, that Crusader has made an independent decision now, somewhere off camera. She has decided, yes, I do want to go ahead with this love affair. And that, in uh, effect, is the message that she gives to him. But once again, we have a deferral of the actual consummation of love. Theoretically, what would you get them both in this bedroom and dot, 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 it all happens. And here, make an agreement that something is going to happen uh, in the future. And when that happens, it's at the bottom of page 516, uh, Pandarus goes into one of many episodes in this poem in which you see him as a priest-like figure. Phil Pandarus on Canaan. And up his and to heaven threw and held his horn as he. What is being described here is a priest saying mass, holding up the consecrated uh, host. This is uh, un unmistakable. He says, "Immortal God, quote hey, that may not be in cupid main of this amazed glorify and vainest thou mayst mockin melodia." He is a priest in the carnal sexual religion Venus Cupid and there are many uh, there are many moments in the poem in which through these like emotions this is one of the most uh, dramatic once again he does it uh, at the uh, central uh, scene anyway the lovers agree uh, that something will happen that they will get together later uh, in uh, later and indeed they do so later in the in this same third uh, book. But we have now one of the most extraordinary passages uh, in book three, and it's one of the rare moments, take it seriously, in which uh, Pandarus seems to show some degree of uh, moral sensitivity or, or uh, conscience. And the long conversation that goes from pages from page 516 to page uh, 519, but the gist of it is this. Pandarus tells Troilus, you know, he says, I'm a little disturbed. Uh, he doesn't say what that is, but of course, with uh, my niece, and I've done it, she's agreed that she is going to go to bed with you. And uh, uh, I'm not sure that this is the right kind of thing for an uncle to be doing. Well, we're pretty sure it's not the right kind of thing. Uh, he says uh, at line 250, he says, uh, And ye have brought to switch a plit uh, uh, as thou wost, so that through May thou standest now in way to far and well. On account of me, you're going to be okay. He say it not for boast, and wost thou we? For sham it is to say. 
For they have e begun a gamin play, line 250, I've begun to play a game, which that he never do shall f for other, although he were a thousandfold me brother. I've done something for you that I would never do for anybody else, uh, even if he were my own brother, if he were a thousand times uh, over my uh, brother. <clears throat> and then he defines it in this very curious way. That is to say, line 253, that is to say, for they am e be common, betwixen gom and earnest, switch a main, as mocken women unto men to come. <laughs> now, the term that we would have is a pimp. And he's obviously... Because he is in the process of and it's going to be pander on account of this character. But he's saying that he is in the world betwixen gom and earnest. You're going to have to figure out whether you actually believe him. Uh, what degree of morality, if any at all, do you see uh, in Pandarus? We were talking in a preceptorial this morning about possible motivations for Pandarus. Can we find uh, any uh, consistent motivation? This is the one moment in the poem, well, there's one other actually at the very end, when he hints at it, but this is the one moment in the poem where we see him going through some kind of moral self-scrutiny. Uh, self <coughs> and he's not sure that he has uh, behaved uh, rightly. <laughs> well, uh, th this is one of those moments, uh, this is one of the moments in the poem, and there are many which dramatize, and in my uh, reading of the poem, in fact, overly relationship between the in, of the of the characters and the moral decay that we see in by the time this poem is over words like truth honor and so forth uh, have the value only of small coins in a wildly inflated currency Notice that any time Pandarus says, be trope, you know that he's going to be telling a lie. That's almost a sig signal that, by my truth, you are going to see a lie. Well, <laughs> this, I think, is a flawed moment in the poem. I don't think that Chaucer possibly can have meant to let the cat out of the bag uh, quite as much as he did, but let's see what he does on page uh, 519. Uh, this gets rather upset when he hears Pandarus talking this way, talking he's done something he ought not to do, and here is his, uh, he, here, here is his uh, response. He says, He that goeth, uh, 399, He that goeth for gold or for richessa or switch massage, call him what they list. That is, if you sell your sister for money or political power, some other kind of advantage, call it whatever you like. But if you do it for friendship, what are you supposed to call it? Call it gentilessa. Now, we know quite a bit about gentilessa. We had the great gentilessa contest of the Franklin's uh, tale. 
And remember, we took votes and everything. When we did that, we also read Chaucer's little poem that is simply called Gentilessa. And if that wasn't enough Gentilessa, we get a big dose of Gentilessa in the wife of Bath's tale. Remember when the old woman is talking to the knight and she says to him, handsome is that handsome does. When you're talking about the difference between, uh, you know, do you want to marry an old hag or young interior and the moral, the, the moral qualities. This is the most remarkable thing. And he says, call it gentilessa, compassion and fellowship and tryst. Uh, depart it so for, for weed where it is wist, how that there is diversity required betwixt and thing as leek as ye have lyric. The intellectual subtlety, says uh, Troilus, depends upon your ability to make uh, acute differentiations and distinctions. So, if you sell your sister for money, that's pimping. If you do it for me, for friendship, that's gentilessa. Now, this is really a gross thing in the poem, it seems to me. Uh, the critics fall all over themselves trying to justify this. I don't see uh, any justification for it, especially as it uh, revolves around this word gentilessa, this concept gentilessa, that is so important in Chaucer's moral vocabulary elsewhere. But in case you're not shocked enough, at line 407, uh, uh, Troilus goes on to say this, And that thou knowest, ye think not, uh, Nowena, that this service a shambe or a joppa, so you will know that I don't think there's anything morally questionable about what you've done. I'm now going to make an act of gentilessa of my own. He says, you have me fairer sister, Polyxane, Cassandra, Ellen, any of the frappa. That word frappa is really a cold word. This is one of very few passages in the Troilus where the moral tone degraded from what you have in the Philostrata. But he's saying, you, you think that I think this is You want to go to bed with any of my sisters? There's Polixena. There's Sandra. Here's Helen of Troy. She's only my sister-in-law, but I'm offering her to you like an after-dinner chalk. It's really uh, pretty bizarre. The uh, Donald Howard is one of the uh, great Chaucer critics and a person who's desperately trying to save the uh, appearances here because he wants Troilus to be a good... Oh, this is one of those kind of extravagant pagan gestures that they used to make where you kind of, you know, you say something. It's like in, in, in Spanish-speaking countries, you go into somebody's house and they say, su casa, you know, like it's your house. And then you pull out your legal document and get the guy to sign on the line. So, you know, it's just, no, it's one of these extravagant social gestures. Not nonsense. Don't you see <laughs> that the language has become so degraded uh, and that uh, uh, Troilus has become so uh, morally opaque to what the situation is that he thinks that that is, uh, a, re uh, that is a, reasonable, uh, a reasonable thing uh, to be uh, saying. Now, the actual mechanics of getting the lovers uh, together, as I said in an earlier lecture, turns out to be very difficult uh, given the actual power of natural sexual attraction. I mean, the sexes were 
speaking for each other. It's just kind of hardwired in uh, society. Nonetheless, it takes Pandarus an awful lot of work uh, to pull this off. And in fact, he's not able to do it uh, on his own. He needs divine intervention. He needs the intervention of the pagan god. <clears throat> Did any of you happen to notice uh, <laughs> the, uh, the major rainstorm that we have in the middle three. If you did, did anybody have an idea where this rainstorm might have come from? Anybody have an idea with regard to this? Yes. The greatest love affair of all time, as far as our people are concerned, has to be the story of Dido and Aeneas in book four of the Aeneid. Now, once again, the gods are sort of conspiring uh, against Aeneas. Why? Because uh, they hate Troy. Same deal that you have uh, here. He's a Trojan, and he's on his way to found the Roman Empire. How do you keep somebody from founding a Roman Empire? Only one guaranteed way. Switchawentia. And especially if Switchawentia is also a beautiful queen. And even better yet, if he's, she's the queen of Carthage, the nation that is going to give you uh, the greatest military scare in your life. So this is what happens. He's wandering around uh, North Africa. He runs, into, uh, he runs into Dido. They fall in love very much through the same kind of uh, machinations of Venus and, and uh, Cupid as you have uh, in this poem. But even so, there is enough that, uh, you know, they don't just hop into bed with each other. The hottest date they can come up with is that they're going to go hunting. Go out and they go hunting. And they're, you know, doing this kind of thing. The gods say, we've got to do something about this. And so they make a tremendous rainstorm. And the rain comes. And then they look around. Is there any place they can take, uh, uh, take refuge? Yes, there is. There's a cave. And they go into the cave. And Western history never the same again. Mm -hmm. That was the day of the And Virgil says of Dido, Conyugiam vocat. She called it a marriage. With that word, she covered her culpa. Culpa means, <laughs> doesn't mean what you think it does. <laughs> Culpa means fault or sin. Okay. Now, Virgil is not, he's not a 13th century friar. He's not worried about premarital sex or something like that. What's wrong in calling this a conyugium, a, uh, a, a, a marriage, uh, is that what a marriage is, is a joining of dynastic powers. All this is, is a tremendous uh, tumble in the hay, or rather in this case, uh, in the cave, and that's pretty much what you have here too. So you get this wonderful uh, rainstorm that that uh, has uh, uh, is repeated three or four times. Uh, Pandarus has invited uh, Crusada over to his house, invited her to dinner, and he's trying to get her to stay. Don't want to stay. The rain begins, and he says, and he laughs. When he sees uh, that the rain is raining at line 561, uh, at which Shalof and Goner fast excuse and said, It raineth, lo, how then should I go? Let they quote hey, 
the stanza, not the soaked musa. Over on page 522, uh, you get this very classical passage where fortune is said to be determining things. But fortune, exetrice of weirds is, O influence of this a heaven's he, uh, soth is, that under God ye ben ur hirdes. Uh, the stars are what are actually uh, directing uh, d- directing our uh, powers. Line 624. The bent moon with her horn as Paula, Saturn and Jove in Kinkro joined where that switch a rain from heaven gone abala that every man or woman that was there. Look at that, that, that phrase. It's beautiful. Every man or woman, M-A-N-E-R-W-O-N-E-R, means is every category or every class of woman. But if you read the line, it says every or woman is influenced uh, by uh, this rain. I've written an essay about this little passage in which I show its antecedents uh, in the uh, very surprising antecedents in the Romance of the Rose. This is one of uh, many places where Chaucer is uh, being uh, the most classical in reconstructing, uh, in, in reconstructing the uh, scene. Anyway, she can't leave. And uh, it's all on account of this brainstorm. And as Miss Sutter saw, it's the of the fourth book of the uh, Aeneid because Chaucer is writing uh, a, a very uh, classical, um, classical poem. Then the lying really begins. Because, of course, he has arranged for Troilus uh, to sneak back to the house. He says, I'm going to get her in the house, and uh, now you come back. Now, of course, all these guys have been reading their Ovid. They're very humorous Ovid. And Ovid is full of advice for lovers. He believes that you always ought to do the romantic thing. For example, if you're trying to get into your lover's bedroom window... Uh, don't go through the open door, even though it's unlocked. You have to climb up the drain spout. You think uh, this is just the way lovers behave. Now, do you notice at uh, Pandarus's house? I didn't say this. It says this right in the text that he's crawled through a gutter and a privy. <laughs> he has come into the house through the. Now, I can't imagine that this would very much enhance his, you know, sort of attractiveness uh, as a lover. But this is actually what the text says, because, of course, he, I mean, you have an exterior degradation. <laughs> it's one of these many fantastic details in the poem. You can't take absolutely literally, but it does, it is indeed uh, morally, uh, morally uh, true. And then... Uh, Pandarus runs up to Crusade uh, and says, my God, and imagine what's happened. Troilus has just crawled through a gutter into the house and he's very upset. He's upset on account of you and Harasti. He says, Harasti, who's Harasti? Harasti, Harasti, your boyfriend. The one you've been tooth-cleaning Troilus with. Well, says, I'm, you know, I don't know anybody named Harasti. I don't have any boyfriend or anything like that. He says, oh, I don't know. He's in really bad shape. You know, I don't think he's going to believe that. And he says, well, look, why don't you give him my ring? I have a blue ring. And 
she hands it to her, to Pandora and says, show him that. He says, listen, the shape this guy's in, it's going to take more than a ring to, to take care of it. Now, do you remember that filthy stuff that I pointed out to you that nobody saw for 500 years? Then in the ring, well is the ruby set and so forth. You have this ring <laughs> theme uh, that is, it, it comes out of one of uh, Ovid's funnier and I have to say dirtier poems. You've seen the kind where lovers send letters to their girl. Hey, boy, I wish read and pampered by the, my beloved and so on. Yeah, he has one uh, about a ring. And I won't go All the things he says about this ring, you can sort of imagine. And this is exactly what uh, Chaucer uh, is imagining as well. He says, a ring, quote, hey, yea, Hoslewood is shocking. Yea, may Nasa mean, that ring must hand a stone that meet the dead a man, Makaliva. Said, in order to satisfy Troilus, this ring would have to have such a magic stone in it that actually could survive the dead. He really needs uh, to see you. And so she at last agrees uh, to uh, that. Now, in this, uh, Pandarus practically goes wild excitement of alluded to preceptorial discussion this morning. We detected homoerotic tendencies uh, in Pandarus, heterosexual tendencies in Pandarus, uh, and uh, a artistic dimension. Uh, notice how he arranges the lovers. He says, Troilus, you lie down over here. And he literally gets a cushion. Did you notice that? Puts a cushion under his head so that it's just right. Like a photographer setting up, um, setting up a, a, a shoot. And finally, uh, when the lovers uh, are uh, when the lovers are together, uh, Pandra says, <laughs> I guess you don't need me anymore. He says, neither I nor this candle uh, are needed anymore. And I, he goes off to the uh, corner uh, where the fireplace is and he pretends to read an old romance. Okay, this, this is, now, let your, let all go here because... Uh, Almost anything that you can think about Pandarus is here possible. There definitely seems to be some sort of voyeuristic element that is, say, he seems to be getting erotic satisfaction uh, out of having uh, set up this thing. He's an artist. He has created this. Remember at the end of book one, we have that long passage from uh, the long uh, uh, image out of the De Poetria Nova of Geoffrey of Ansoff about when you, uh, about when you uh, go to build a house, you have to do so carefully, you lay out the foundation and everything. That is the love affair that he has been, uh, that he has been creating. The very center of book three, which I'm not going to say anything about, uh, is, I think, uh, what seems to be a and beautiful statement Human love. Uh, it is the center of the poem. It is al almost literal. Um, would be the dead center uh, of the poem, and you're getting really just about to the climax of the uh, book at that ha at that point. But it's a very brief passage of happiness. This is not accidental. That is to say, Chaucer is trying to show you uh, that happiness, happiness of this kind. Uh, is going to last uh, only for uh, a very few, uh, 
uh, a very few uh, um, minutes. And we'll take a look at one literary uh, connection of that um, as I end this, uh, as I end this uh, lecture. It's very hard to avoid the dead rat uh, in book three when you get to page 534. The lovers get together a little room that is separated from uh, the other side of the house only by a cloth curtain. So there's really not a great deal of privacy under the circumstances. But fortunately for them, this raging thunderstorm goes on all night. I mean, it is so uh, cinematic. It's really beautiful. That is the height of their passion and the passion of the storm that has uh, allowed it to happen are are, uh, co And we're not told a great deal more about that, but on page 534, you get what I call the morning after the night before. This is one of the most ambiguous of Chaucer. Uh, Troilus has now split. That is, uh, presumably he's crawled back down the uh, gutter uh, pipe and, uh, and, and go- gone home. And Pandarus, at the very bottom of column 1, 534, Pandarus Amarwa, which that come and was unto his nace, he gan her fera greta. He goes into her, her room and he says, ha, 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 I wonder if you had any sleep last night. No, it was really raining and all hot. I bet some people have the tone of it. I'm not making this up. I mean, it's really pretty gross, uh, it seems to me. Uh, he says, it rained so much that some of us, he trove, here hid his aka. And Neri come and said, how stand it now, this Mary Marwa? Nace, how can ye fare? How you doing, honey? And, and Crusader answered, never the bet for you, uh, Fox that ye bay. I'm not any better off on account. She knows exactly who set this up uh, now, and it is, uh, it is him. God gave your hair to Kara. God help me so, ye cause it all this fara. You cause this whole thing. Troy, Croce, for all your ward is Huita. Oh, whoso saith yo, conoweth yo, but Huita. For all your Apparently good words. Anybody who knows you very well that from your exterior. Uh, this is no news uh, for us, but she is saying it very explicitly. With that, she gan her fossa. If you have your text, look at this. This is dynamite, 1570, uh, on page 534. With that, she gan her fossa for to Rhea uh, with the shade. And wex for sham all red. She's trying to cover herself. People, uh, generally speaking, uh, slept naked uh, in the Middle Ages, which is a little fine point that you might want to uh, want, want to know. So she covers herself with a sheet, and she blushes uh, all red. And Pandarus gan under for to Priya. Under what? Well, there's only one thing you can be prying under, and that's the sheet. And said, Nace. If that he shall be dead, have Hera sweared, and smeeteth off mean head. With that his arm all suddenly he thrist under her neck, and at the last your kiss. Now, okay, so he kisses her. Now the poet says something uh, that uh, it causes great consternation in the notes at the back of your book, uh, which is, 
ye pass all that which chargeth not to say. I'm going to pass over the kind of stuff that you really ought not to talk about. What God foryath his death, and she also foryath, and with her uncle gan to play. For other cause was there known than so. But of this thing ricked the effect to go, when, team, when Tima was, home till her hoose she went, and Pandarus hath fully his intent. The gist of it all is Pandarus got everything that he was uh, interested in. Now, the poet just told you, I'm not going to tell you anything that I ought not to tell you. But that is so much like saying, don't stick beans up your nose. You know what I mean? <laughs> because, I mean, what is it that you're not supposed to uh, tell us? Well, remember, is the Stephen tragedy here. There has to be at least a whiff of the incest theme that hovers over this thing, especially as we see its connection with the story of the rape of Amnon, of Tamar, Amnon. And this is the way that uh, Chaucer does it. Steve Borden, who is the editor of, the, of Troilus, uh, in your text, you might look at the notes on this. Uh, trying to tell me that, that there's nothing at all going on in these lines, despite the fact that these are the lines that make the sleepiest undergraduate really try to get after the Middle English syntax uh, of, <laughs> of, uh, of Troilus. It's, it's a really a, a kind of uh, extraordinary uh, passage. Then we have an invocation of Dante. I know that some of you, at least, have studied uh, uh, Dante. And we have an invocation of his, uh, of his treatment of lust. Uh, in the uh, Inferno. A famous passage which everybody has at least heard of, whether you've read it or not, the story of Paolo and Francesca in the fifth canto uh, of the uh, Inferno. Now, remember that Pandarus is a limping lady philosophy. That is, he got into this event in the role of lady philosophy. The first time he um, got involved in this love affair, was when he goes into Troilus's bedroom and he does a lady philosophy act and, he, and Troilus is to that uh, his, sick, uh, his sick Boethius. Now, uh, in the fifth canto of the uh, Inferno, uh, Virgil and uh, Dante who are standing there and Paolo and Francesca are sitting on the park bench and uh, Francesca does all the talking. And she says, all this came about from a mystery where the lovers kiss, and when we read about that kiss, you know, this one with whom I'm sitting through uh, eternity, we got kind of excited, we put the book down, uh, that day uh, we, uh, we uh, read no further. The worst thing about this is, that the worst kind, the worst punishment that you suffer in hell is <laughs> remembering when you are in misery, a happy time that you had in the past. And she says, and this, talking to Dante, this thy master knows. It's a tricky place in Dante because who is master? Out of ten people say uh, it's Virgil. He's actually standing there. But some of them say anything exactly like that. 
That is a direct quotation. You might even recognize it. It's a quotation from Lady Philosophy, Consolation of Philosophy. That is the master who knows this. So now you have Pandarus saying to Troilus, okay, you're on top of the world right now. You've gotten what you wanted. You've scored, so forth and so on. But just remember, and then at line 1625, for of fortuna's sharp adversite, the worst kind of infortune is this. A man who had been in prosperite, and in it remembering when it passeth is, thou'rt wheeze enough for thee, though not amiss. They knock to rockle, though thou sit a worm, for if thou bay, certain it wall the harm. Well, uh, it's at that moment, it seems to me, this very moment of the poem, that the poem takes a radical uh, turn toward the tragic, and it never, uh, never uh, Chaucer is used this are not merely the Philostrato of Boccaccio, but he's explicitly invoking the consolation of philosophy of Boethius. From this time on, the consolation of philosophy of Boethius is going to play a greater and greater role in the philosophical economy of the poem. This is the way I told you in an earlier that medieval poets made eroticism philosophically serious. They're now presenting love as a serious you know, philosophical, uh, philosophical uh, problem. And we're going to see uh, that inexorably the uh, sources that are, dri- that are driving Lollius uh, are sources uh, that are leading him to tragedy. Well, who is Lollius? On the handout, I've given you my guess about Lollius. Lollius does in one classical poem, a poem uh, that is a sister poem to the Ars, uh, the Ars Poetica of uh, Horace. And this is a poem written to his friend, Maximus Lollius. Christus and Crantor are the two great Stoic philosophers. Why I've come to think so, let me tell you. And then he gives you a summary of these two great poems of Horace. One he says is about a great hero travels all over the world. Uh, that would be the Odyssey. Okay? Uh, but another uh, embraces the passions of things and people. That would be the Iliad. And Antenor moves to cut away the cause of war. That's, Paris, that's Helen. What of Paris? To reign in safety and to live in happiness, nothing, he says, can force him. He gives you a plot of the Iliad, which is the, the plot that lies in the background of the Troilus. Now, what is Horace saying in this poem? He's addressing some young person who wants to be a poet, whose name is Lollius, and he tells him that Homer was the author of two great moral allegories. See, what I think Chaucer has done is he has pretended, he has pretended uh, that he has found the lost manuscript written by this Lollius, you know, who actually took, uh, uh, took uh, Horace's, um, Horace's advice. Say a little more about this uh, more uh, next time. But you've got to get prepared for a real tragic 
turn uh, in the and find it very tough.